Well, not so. So this afternoon we begin some actual investigation. This in the context of classic Buddhist education within India, as in the Nalanda tradition, what we're focusing on here falls very clearly in the category of Adyatma Vidya, or inner knowledge, knowledge from the inside out. And it's really one of the great traditions, as you probably know, as Holiness Dalai Lama is very strongly promoting, uh, trying to promulgate this, this whole orientation towards education, and specifically to an understanding of Buddha Dharma. But this Adhyatma Vidya, this inner knowledge, what it's seeking to do, it is, it is definitely in the pursuit of knowledge, not just faith or belief or something else, but really knowing reality as it is, but from the inside out. And there's quite an extraordinary complementarity here. It's almost like there's some grand design. Um, in terms of the whole, really, kind of the, the current of Western civilization from the time of Aristotle, right up through especially the crescendo beginning with Galileo 400 years ago, and right to the present day of really seeking to understand the nature of reality from the outside in, from God's perspective. From God's perspective, that was exactly what Galileo was after. What's the universe look like from God's perspective, from an outside perspective? What's out there when we're not looking? In other words, what's really, absolutely, inherently, and truly existent? How is the world really, as God himself sees it? You know? And so trying to approximate that, it's called apotheosis, and that is where the, the mind of man seeks to ascend to the perspective of God himself and see what's it look like from God's perspective. Scientists don't use that terminology anymore. They simply call it pure objectivity which means that all subjective influences on the human side are banished, true taboo. I have a whole book on that, the taboo of subjectivity, the taboo of human subjectivity. So you're getting reality as it is, as if we're not involved, from the outside in. And the culmination of this, and this traces right back to Aristotle, but right back to science today, is the culmination of that approach to understanding reality, the natural universe, the natural world, the universe itself, and our role in it, the culmination of this, when you come to the kind of the cherry, the icing on the cake, the grand finale, it is a conceptual understanding. We're following Aristotle here. Man's highest reason, and it's very gender-specific, man's highest faculty is reason. And so that's when you come, that's the, the grand finale. You say something, you think something, or nowadays you publish a paper in a peer-reviewed journal. And that's when you get your Nobel Prize. In fact, it will be said, the discovery isn't made until it's published or ex at least accepted in a peer-reviewed journal. That's when the discovery is made. You might have made the discovery years before, but that doesn't count. It doesn't count until it's conceptualized and it's made public, published in a peer-reviewed journal. Okay, and then it's now it's real. Now here's your reward, and that's it. But it culminates in conceptualization. That's exactly what Galileo's after. He said he was a, a frustrated contemplative. As you might recall, if you know his life story, he was trained as a contemplative as a youth, wanted to stay in the monastery, and his dad wouldn't pay for it. So he had to go off to university, tried medicine, he hated it, but he found he was good at mathematics, and the rest is history. And so the culmination, the conceptualization, but starting from the outside in, and of course, where this is leading to is when you finally get around to the human mind, frankly, you don't know what to do with it because it's not objective, it's not physical, it's qua not quantitative, it's totally invisible to all methods of scientific inquiry. So what do you do? I say, ah, caramba, let's just say it's the same as the brain. 
and now it's mission accomplished and carry right on. And just say, just say it, you know. Say it loud. Have a whole bunch of people say it in unison. The mind is the brain. The mind is what the brain does. Let's just say all together, we'll all agree. And after all, reality is by vote, isn't it? Don't we simply vote what's true? And that's exactly what the scientific community has done. They've simply voted it in with no evidence. All the evidence is to the contrary. There's no evidence to support it. And let's, well, just never mind, let's just say that. That the mind really is just the brain. So, that's what, so we wind up mind having no role in nature at all. The mind is simply a little excretion, like, mind, like brain poop. John Searle says the, mind, the brain excretes thoughts like the gallbladder excretes bile. So why don't we just call it brain poop? You know, That's the role of consciousness. It's brain poop with no significance in the natural world after all. It's just a sheer accident. So that's what you get when you come from the outside in. Fantastic technology, a lot of knowledge, marvelous laws of nature. The mathematics is sublime. The only thing you left out is you. And you just wind up being equated to a brain with brain poop. So that's one approach. It's magnificent and yet profoundly limited, where it matters most. And then we have the Buddhist approach, which is profoundly limited, no mathematics, no physics, no quantitative, no science of the brain, no cosmology, not like we have, not, no telescopes, no technology. That's called limited. But we have liberation. <laughs> that counts. And so this is from the inside out, where from the very beginning you're assuming, of course, mind has a role, because the only type of reality we're interested in is that which is experiential. And the culmination of the path, when you come to become an arhat, a pratyeka buddha, a buddha, you realize Dzogchen, you achieve rainbow body. Is it conceptual or non-conceptual? Non-conceptual. In other words, no Nobel Prize, but rather a noble prize. It's called the third noble truth. That's your prize. The Adia prize, right? But no Nobel prize, because where's your paper? Where's your paper? So in this marvelous, marvelous film called The Yogis of Tibet, this incredibly accomplished yogi, Dupanamujay, formidable, he just looks right into the camera and says, I can remember all my past lives. And although I appear human from the outside, inside it's very different. No Nobel Prize for him. He's made some of the most important discoveries from his own experience about the nature of consciousness. And eh, whatever, old man, funky-looking old man. So it culminates in the non-conceptual, and it's the non-conceptual that radically transforms and liberates. And the other one just gives you a Nobel Prize. And it doesn't liberate anything. It doesn't even touch one single mental affliction. It doesn't even touch it. So complementarity. I love the fact that I could fly here, didn't have to swim. And Buddhism would have had me swim. And I wouldn't have done it, you know? And so it's not one side is good, one side is bad, but boy, are they different. And we are profoundly, drastically missing in the modern world the necessary complement to this massive emphasis on the objective, the quantifiable, and the totally reductionistic, materialistic view to all of reality where it, the absolute insistence is that we must understand the mind in biological terms. But I was just reading a paper yesterday. The biologists say, oh, you can't understand biology in terms of pure physics and chemistry. No, 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 you can't do that. But can you understand the mind in terms of biology? Oh, yes, definitely. No problem. So it's really hysterical. So this is complementary. 
This is from the inside out. So where are we going in this meditation coming up right up? And that is, when you come from the outside in, and you're really trying to understand, and this is what scientists, since at least the time of Galileo, but we can go back to Aristotle, what they've been trying to understand is, what's out there when we're not looking? When you close your eyes. So when you close your eyes, you don't get these images. The images arise independent upon your visual cortex, right? Right? Blue, red, all those kind of stuff. Close your eyes, they're not there. They're not waiting for you when you open your eyes, as if images are traveling through space. They're not. Physicists don't believe that. Neuroscientists don't believe that. It's not true. And so when you close your eyes, you close your ears, and you just hunker down, what's still out there? And what the scientists have come up with, and it's brilliant, it's ingenious, and it's very practical and very useful, is a whole periodic table of the elements that constitute the physical world. You know them, from the, from the gases on all, all the way through the heavy metals, you know, uranium and particles that hardly last any time at all because they're almost virtual. And so very, very useful. Very useful for technology. Very useful for developing a conceptual understanding of chemistry, of physics, right down to quantum mechanics. Incredibly useful. Right down to particle physics. Very good. It's brilliant science. I say that with only respect. Right? Because those particles out there, those electrons, protons, and everything else all the way up, that's what we assume to be there when we're not looking. They don't arise just by looking. They're already there, right? Right? So this is not just make-believe. This is not something you conjure up with your machines. This is really talking about what's there when we're not looking. Right. But now, when we go contemplatively, and that's when you're trying to look from the outside in. When we're not here, when we're closing our eyes, what's still out there? Conceptually, okay, cobalt, aluminum, copper, helium, hydrogen, Oxygen, shall we go on? You know, 108 something, I don't know how many. It's over 100 elements, I think. And so, but that's not the question from the Buddha side. When you're starting with the fundamental question, what's the, what's the reality of suffering? You don't ask, what's the, reality, what's the reality of suffering when nobody's experiencing it? What's the sound of one hand clapping? That's, that's a stupid question. What's the nature of suffering when nobody's experiencing it? Why are you asking such a dumb question? What's the origin of suffering when nobody's experiencing it? Dumb question. So these questions are about our lives, about reality that we experience and not reality as it exists independently of our experience. And that's the framework for all of Buddha Dharma. Zen, Chan, Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Dzogchen, and everything. Four noble truths. And it starts with experience, it moves through experience, it culminates in experience. It's all about experience. And it's from the inside out, mind being central. The mind precedes all phenomena, all phenomena issue forth from the mind, all phenomena consist of the mind. Chapter 1, verse 1, Dhammapada. It couldn't get more central than that. So, so Buddhism does not have a periodic table. This brilliant. I mean, it's really just a masterpiece of just how it all fits together so elegantly. This periodic table known to all the chemists, physicists, and so forth. It's brilliant, and there's no such thing in Buddhism. Because that's not what you get from when you look from the inside out. What do you get when you look from the inside out? And you look at that body of matter, the only body of matter in the universe that you can actually view from the inside out. So I can look at a cell phone, and all I get is its surfaces. I mean, okay, it's smooth, and it's a bit heavy, and it's... It's going to be cool and so forth, and I can take it off. And it's, I'm getting surfaces all the way down, all the way through. It's all surfaces. I don't know what it's like to be a cell phone. Is it like anything? Is it boring? Or, in the words of one Western philosopher, 
What's it like to be a bat? Well, only the bat knows. All we can do is stroke the little furry critters, little rats with wings, you know. But we only know it from the outside. There's only one body of matter in the universe that we know what it's like from the inside out. Only one. Your body. You get to view it from the inside out. What's it like to be embodied? What's it like to have your own awareness permeate your body? What's it like from the inside? You can ask that only of your body. Until you're clairvoyant, this is the, one, the only one you have to look at. So, when you go right into the body and you observe it, again, optimally with shamatha, okay, your best approximation of shamatha, stable and clear, really looking without throwing a bunch of junk on it, all your conceptualizations, images, associations. Okay, clean out the junk and try to get a nice clear take as what's arising in the space of the body and you find, lo and behold, only four elements. Not more than 100, because they don't show up first-person perspective. But four elements do. And these actually are enormously useful. Earth. Earth element. Can you, when you go into your body, can you feel, do you have immediate experience of firmness, of solidity? Like where your, your body is in contact with a cushion, or your hands meet, you knock on your arm, knock on your head, Yep, feels solid. That's earth. I got a lot of earth element there. It's not dirt. It's just solid and firm. Earth element. We feel it. Second, water element. Moist, moist and fluid. Feel it in your mouth. You don't really feel the blood, but you can experience fluidity, moisture in the body when you're sweating and so forth. Right? And then we have the fire element. That's a whole gradient from cold to hot. Right? So if there's very little fire element, it feels cool. If it feels really hot, fire element is prominent. And then the air element the sensations of lightness, of motility, of motion of all kinds, buzzing, tingling, vibration, pulsing, movements of limbs and so forth, all of that, that's the air element. Earth, water, fire, air. And where are these all emerging from? Space. The space of your body. They emerge from, they dissolve back into. Emerging, merging. And so the very translation element, which I use because it's pretty standard by now, is a translation from the Tibetan Jungwa, or in Sanskrit, what is it? Buddha, Buddha, Buddha I think. But in any case, Jungaino, Tibetan. And Jungla literally doesn't mean element, like the periodic table. Those are elements, right? That's not the connotation at all of the Sanskrit or the Tibetan. The Jungla, which is a very close translation from the, from the Sanskrit, just means to emerge. Something is emerging, coming up, manifesting. So within the space of the body, there's an emergence of solidity, firmness. We're going to call that earth. An emergence of experience of moisture, fluidity, we're going to call it water. An emergence of warmth, of heat, fire. An emergence of sensations of motion, tingling, vibration, movement of all kinds. We'll call that air. Where are they all emerging from? Space. What do they all dissolve into? Space. Where are they present? Space. But they are emergent from that. And then there are derivative or emergent properties out of the elements, such as smoothness, roughness, and so forth. And these are emerging out of those same elements. But all of this within the context of a, of a lived world, the experienced world, not the world as it exists independently of our experience, the world that we are experiencing. So where we'll go, and I'm just about finished here, is to take very seriously this, because what happens ever so often, I see it oh, agonizingly too common, is psychologists especially, but neuroscientists really love to say this too, all your pers first-person experience, oh, that's, that's illusory. Your first person experience is illusory. Your experience of your own mind, oh, that's illusory. Don't take it seriously. We'll take over from here. Thanks very much.
we'll study your brain. So just shut up, but we'll do a brain scan, and we'll tell you what's going on. One of the most hilarious instances of this I saw just a couple of days ago, and actually got published in major press. It was scientists took some guinea pigs, exposed them to dim light, then studied their brain, brain activity, and they found brain activities that were comparable to the brain activities of human when they are depressed. They just sound some parallels. Guinea pigs, exposed to dim light. What shall we conclude from this? Are you ready? Watching late night television leads to depression. <laughs> this is not in a comic book. This is serious scientists spent money to come up with that conclusion. And then the press picked it up and said, oh, this is catchy. Late night television causes depression. Imagine you're a guinea pig <laughs> in your cage with wood chips surrounded by your own shit. You'll never in your life ever escape, and you're exposed to dim light. Might you be a bit depressed anyway? And they conclude from this late night television makes you depressed. So I saw a really good spoof on this, and, and it, was a, it, was, it, was not a, it was not a science writer, because they seem to be seem like puppies lapping up milk. Whatever the scientists say, they just go, ar, 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 and they just say it. They, they just do not seem to have any critical attitude at all. Whatever the scientists say, they just pass it on, like cherub, like, like a choir. It was actually it took a comedian to say, this is how you figure out that watching late-night television makes you depressed? Why not actually ask somebody who watches late-night television, are you depressed? <laughs> but we wouldn't want to go there because that's like not scientific, right? I mean, what, what would you know whether you're depressed or not? That's your subjective experience. I mean, that's illusory. Let's get back to the, ra the hamster's brains where we really know what's going on. So there's a lot of real absurdity here. I mean, it's taken absurdity to the infinite level of trying to figure out the nature of human mind by way of hamster brains is really quite something. So what we are doing here is we are taking first-person experience seriously and trying to refine it. Because of course we can, be, make, be, we can be, be mistaken, we can misinterpret, we can project, all kinds of stuff. There's no question about it. But that's what shamatha is for to refine, to close down, you know, shut down the noise, the junk, the rumination, the projections. See clearly with stability, with vividness, with high resolution. Take first-person series and make it into a rigorous approach to investigating, first of all, the nature of the mind, so it becomes flamboyantly obvious that it's not the brain. Never was, never will be. It's complete superstition. And you can see that. That's why I just speak with like, oh, please stop saying this rubbish and especially in the name of science, which I so love and respect. So there it is. We're coming right back to four elements, earth, water, fire, air. We're going to look at them closely as they emerge in the space of the body. See them for what they are. Follow the Buddhist teachings. In the felt, let there be just the felt. Just take them nakedly. That is, we're using concepts to identify. And the phrase used up a lot in Buddhism is the finger pointing to the moon. So if I say, look, Martin, look over there. Can you see the moon? It's just, just rising over the, over the horizon. No, pretend. But can you see it over there? And so when I'm saying that, Martin, can you see the moon arising over there? That's all conceptual. And that, but he says, where, where? And he said, right over there. And then with the concept and with my finger, what does he do? Think about the moon? 
No. He uses the words, can you see the moon rising over there? And then he goes, and he goes non-conceptual. Boom, got it. Boom, don't got it. I see it, I don't see it. But the concepts are just to direct you. It's like, like pointing a gun or pointing a laser beam, pointing a telescope. Look here. So earth, water, fire, air, we identify them by way of concepts. But once you've got on target, then just look at them closely. That's what Galileo did. He had a, bu a brilliant conceptual mind, but when he's looking through his telescope, he's not just thinking about planets and stars. He's actually observing very, very carefully. And with continuity, with stability, with vividness, revolutionized mo modern science. He really basically started modern science. But starts with concepts, but it goes beyond concepts. It goes rightly to direct, precise, sophisticated, and replicable observation. So that's where we're starting. Conceptual categories of earth, water, fire, air, and space. There's the target. There's the finger pointing to the moon. And now just go in and look closely. Look closely. And then start posing questions, as Galileo did. When he saw these little dots right next to the larger dot that we call Jupiter. They could be background stars. They look just like stars. They're little dots. Stars are little dots. But he wasn't satisfied with that. He saw those little dots clustered around Jupiter through his telescope. And then, and then the question arose, are they background st stars? In which case, Jupiter would move across them. And that's exactly, you just see Jupiter moving across, but they would be stationary, right? Or, or what? And lo and behold, he found those little dots moved around Jupiter rather than Jupiter just kind of moving across the sky. So, big discovery. Jupiter has moons. And likewise, phases of Venus, likewise, craters of moon, likewise, sunspots, and so forth. He observed carefully, but with a question. And then he observed more carefully, and then he wrote one of the, the most epic-making texts in the whole history of modern science. Starry Messenger, 1609. The publication of what he saw. It's brilliant. It was really core science. That's exactly what the mind scientists aren't doing. They are professionally trained not to look at the mind. And that's what Buddhists, contemplatives, and Hindus, and Buddhists, and so forth, are professionally trained to do. Don't just think about the mind. Don't just dogmatically equate it with something that it's not, because you find it easier to study, which is the easy out that all of modern science has taken. But actually observe it very closely with rigor, sophistication, precision, and see what you discover there. So we're starting with the body, and then we'll move from there to the mind. We go from coarse to subtle, starting with the body, then attending to feelings, and then we get to the mind, to consciousness itself, and then we go supernova to try to look at the interrelationship among all these phenomena, physical, mental, and so forth. So this is a big deal. It's really a big deal. This is the, the complement to the awe-inspiring, the majestic, the wondrous discoveries made by science looking from outside in but just falling flat on their face when it comes to the nature of consciousness and really don't have a clue what the nature of mind is or the role of mind in nature because they've already decided it's only the brain. Well, if you've decided, then you're not going to discover anything. It's called an illusion of knowledge blocking actual discovery. And that just saturates the mind sciences. Illusions of knowledge just like smoke filling a room. Henry David Thoreau called it the smoke of opinion. And that's what's just clouding everything. In the scientific study of the mind, they just cannot get away from the materialistic assumptions. They will one day, but man, they're taking a long time. So we don't have to wait for them. Just go right in with clear awareness. You don't need to bring any metaphysical assumptions with you. Just look closely, attend closely, first to the body, 
The next week we'll go on to feelings, we'll go on to mind, go on to consciousness itself. See what you see. This is not brainwashing. This is not dogma. It's just radical empiricism. But looking at the body from the inside out, and then we'll start posing questions. You ready? Okay. Get into a comfortable position. The first step, as always, is just to relax, to literally settle down, letting your awareness descend right down to the ground, non-conceptually, going right into this mode of immediate awareness, simply attending to the emergence of the earth element as your body is in contact with the ground. If you're in the supine position, you have a lot to work with. All those sensations from the back of the head down to the heels, Lots of earth element. Very good for grounding the awareness. Let your awareness rise up and fill the space of the body, settling in its, in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant, settling your respiration in its natural rhythm. For this short time, set aside all your cares, all mundane concerns. Give yourself a break, freedom, just to rest silently, non-conceptually, in the present moment. See what it's like just to be present.
for just a, for just a short time. Simply allow your awareness to rest without focusing it upon anything external or internal, sensory or mental. Just be present, rebooting. No object without meditating on anything. Just be present in the present moment without distraction, without grasping. Now direct the light of your awareness. Focus your mindfulness on the space of the body, viewing this physical phenomenon from the inside out, letting your awareness flood the space of the body. And now, like a finger pointing to the moon, take the concepts, earth element, emerging as sensations of firmness and solidity, and attend to them nakedly. In the felt, let there be just the felt. Identify them conceptually, but then drop the concept, drop the label. And observe what you observe. What is the earth element as you observe it nakedly, perceptually? Within the space of the body, do you detect any sensations associated with the water element of moisture, fluidity, 
If you can identify, then focus clearly, non-conceptually. Drink it in with your mind. fire element, that whole gradient from cold to hot. Observe it directly. Areas of the body that feel cool, that feel warm, that feel hot, observe closely. Closely apply mindfulness to the gradient of the fire element. air element, indicated by all sensations of motion. Use the concepts to identify them and then observe them closely, non-conceptually.
Now within the space of the body, can you directly perceive anything else other than earth, water, fire, and air? Observe very closely. Among these four elements, these sensations arising from moment to moment, do you see anything stable, static, unchanging? Does anything endure through, through time? Statically.
Now, can you directly perceive the space of the body itself? The space from which the elements of earth, water, fire, air emerge, in which they are present, and into which they dissolve. Can you directly observe that space itself, or can you only project it, imagine it, visualize it? Does that space have any quality? Or is it merely nothing, a mere vacuity, nothing at all? If you sense that you can directly observe or perceive tactile space, then finesse the question. Are you observing it with your tactile awareness as you do directly perceive tactile, the sensations of solidity, moisture, warmth, and so forth? Or is this space of the body something you mentally perceive? not with tactile perception, but with mental perception. See if you can discern the difference.
Olaso. So my turn to get some questions. When you observed in there, in that tactile space, were you able to directly observe, perceive, anything other than the four elements? Anything else arise? It's an open question. That's not a trick question. Do you see anything else? Yes, Anila. Say again. Space. You, you observe space. Okay, good. Good. Could you tell? I know it's a very subtle question. Maybe it's too subtle, but it's a, it's a decent question. Could you tell whether you were perceiving that space of the body with your tactile perception or mental perception? And is the distinction clear? That is, when you visualize, <coughs> visualize your mother's face, you're, you're perceiving it. You don't see it with the eyes. You perceive it mentally, right? You perceive, are you, are you feeling happy, sad, indifferent, restless, agitated? Directly perceive, mental perception, right? Likewise, can you remember the smell of cinnamon? You're directly mentally perceiving that right now. That scent coming to mind right now. You're mentally perceiving that. So we, we mentally perceive a wide variety of phenomena. When you're dreaming, everything you're seeing, and hearing, and tasting, and touching, and so forth, and so on. Everything you're experiencing directly, everything you're perceiving directly in the dream is picked up with what, what, what mode of perception? Only mental, because your five are shut down. You're, you're asleep. You're totally asleep. They're all dormant. So only mental perception is operating, right? So can you, based upon that, can you tell? And all you have to do is give your best guess, not, you know. What's your sense? Oh, could we have the microphone? You have to get this on record if you're wrong. We want to make everybody sure she's wrong. <laughs> Broadcast it to the world. Now, these are open questions, and they're interesting questions. Yeah. It's hard, actually, but I, f I feel that uh, space makes movement possible. So it's only mm. movement is only possible because there is space. So it's, yeah. it's a sort of a conclusion, so I might be mental, but I've, I don't know. <laughs> That's don't certainly know. true for the rest of the universe. If there were no space, the very notion of movement is kind of inconceivable. You're moving from here to there. That means that there had to be space through which you're moving, and if you don't have a notion of space, then the notion of movement kind of just vanishes all by itself. So there is clearly, you are sensing the, the sensations of the breath. That's movement. If you, so just that. And that when you're moving your limbs and so forth, that's movement. So... Quite so. Go ahead. I think you well, I was thinking else. of the space, for example, inside the mouth. Yeah. When I move the tongue, it's only possible because there is space. Yeah. 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 And what's your sense? Could you tell whether you're detecting, that is directly perceiving, could you tell whether you're picking, picking that up with your tactile perception or mental perception? And if you can't tell, it's no big deal. Maybe well, um, movement, movement is tactile. Oh, that's so no, there's no question of that. Yeah. Right. So, yes. And that's it. For example, okay. if I re reached out and shook your hand, right. and you'd, you'd feel that motion as right. I take your hand up and down. Okay. There's just no question. You're picking up that sensation of motion with tactile perception. Right? right? No yes. question about it. Oh. But the space in which that movement takes place, or the space when you feel tingling, moving, vibration, surges of energy in the body, and so forth, when you're observing the space of the body, can you tell? whether you're picking that up with the same mode of perception that you pick up solidity and warmth and fluidity and motion, same, same mode, or can you tell? Well, it's a, con it's a sort of a con conclusion, so I'm not 
I'm not quite sure whether it's That's fine, sure. direct. We're exploring here. I'm not really sure. That's, that's a perfectly good answer. Yeah. Interesting question, though, isn't it? Could be significant. Because if you're, if you're perceiving it mentally, that could be interesting. That could have some implications. Go ahead. Well, I'm thinking of a small child. Yeah. Imagining being a small child, and I'm moving, and I'm, I'm discovering that I can move, yeah. and that it's space allows me to move. That's for sure. I can't move if there's a, something in the way. That's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, one definition of space, that is, it's, it's only one definition of space. A space as, a, as, a, as a, an unchanging phenomenon is the sheer absence of obstructing contact, right? But then w- as, when it's defined as such, and now we go into a bit of Buddhist philosophy, but it's practical. When we define space as the sheer absence of that, well, a sheer absence is just that. There's nothing more to it. You know, it's a simple negation, non, a non-complex simple negation. You know that already from Buddhist philosophy. Therefore, since it's a simple absence of something, then you know there's nothing there to rise and fall, rise and fall. It's just, a sheer absence is immutable. Well, what's to change if it's just simple absence, right? But now, for example, let's do this analogy. Can you directly, per- this for everybody, can you, can you directly perceive the space in between where your face is and where my face is. Can you, can you perceive the space? Or are you imagining it? Or can you not see it at all? Just what's your sense? The space between well, us. I, can, I, could, I could measure it. So no, there's no question. That's I another question. Though. Okay. <laughs> right. Do you have, could you have a ruler? Could you get... I know that. But okay. okay. I'm asking is a very simple question. Can you right now, with two good eyes... And you perceive the space between us. There's not a whole lot of it, but there's enough. Because you can tell my nose is not pressing against your nose. So can you see the space between us? Just look at it and tell me. Well, yes. Huh? Yes, I can see the space between us. You can, yeah. yes. <laughs> it's co- in Tibetan, it's called baranang, baranang ki namka. Baranang means namka space, and baranang means appears in between. So I have a sense that I'm over here, and I can see where your body is. I mean, I can vector in on it, two meters or so. And then I'm looking in between, so I'm not focusing on you, just like a camera lens. I'm focusing on you, and now I'm focusing on me, just like a camera lens. I'm now focusing my attention midway between where I feel my eyes are and where your head is. And I'm looking at something. And I'm not seeing nothing. I'm seeing something. And that's the space that appears between the two of us. And I can tell how much. I can tell how far away you are by observing the space. Right? Is that true? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Yes. Here's an interesting question, though. I think it's true. And now, what, what about this, though? This is just fun, isn't it? And that's, you know, this should be fun. We're actually <laughs> looking at the nature of reality from the inside out. That's not a bad thing to do. This space, everybody do it. This space, right now, miles between us, you look at that space. Permanent or impermanent? Not permanent as it will some, one day it will go away, but is, do you, is it static? Is it unchanging? Is it immutable? Or is that space in between? Can you see that there's something there? What do you think? I can't see that there's something there, no. You can't see? At, at the moment, let's say, at the moment, I can't see that it's, it's, it's alive, so to speak. How does it appear? I didn't say a lot. We don't mean literally just, alive. Just, just empty. Just, 
just empty. And do you see it as a sheer absence? No. You see it as something? As a presence? Think Buddhist it's philosophy. Is it a simple negation, a complex negation, well, I know or an affirmative? I know it's a simple negation. What's that? I know it's a simple negation. Yeah. I've learned that. Do you really? But it doesn't appear like to be that. <laughs> Is it a simple? It's a it's a simple negation. Yes, in Buddhist philosophy, it's the absence of movable, touchable things. If you're quoting Buddhist philosophy, you are one hundred percent wrong. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if that's why it's a different term for it. There's karasa. The simple negation of the simple absence, the negation that is a simple absence of obstructing contact. That's permanent, unchanging. It's a sheer absence. But when we speak of the space that appears in between, mm-hmm. Buddhist philosophy, you want to know, just know something conceptual? That's impermanent. Oh, right. okay. That's impermanent, yeah. And why? You can directly perceive it with your physical senses. Mm-hmm. We're talking Satrantika here. Okay. We're okay. talking basic, good, entry-level, classic Buddhist philosophy. It's really pragmatic. It's, it has flaws in it, but that's what makes it fun. Just like classical physics, classical physics, the union of Newtonian mechanics and electromagnetism. It's beautiful, isn't it? You've studied it extensively. It's exquisite, and it's flawed. And then finding out where the flaws are, that's where the real fun is. You know, assumptions that were held for 300 years and then finding, whoops, that little thing we said about absolute space, wrong. Absolute matter, absolute mass, mass, absolute time, absolute energy. Whoops, 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 whoops. But to set up that whole edifice of classical physics and investigate it so precisely that you can actually see that and run experiments and see, we, we for very good reason, believed in absolute space, time, matter, and energy, mass, energy, for 300, 400 years, if not two, th- two or 3,000 years, and then finding right there at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, wow, we got that one wrong. But you wouldn't have Einstein's theory of relativity unless you had Newton, James Clerk, Maxwell, and all of that. You, would, you couldn't skip those, could you? Don't see how. And so in a similar fashion experientially, the Sartrantica philosophy, is, it's really classic. It's classic Buddhist philosophy, like classical, cl- classic physics, classical physics. You set that up, and only with that as a launching pad can you go into the wonders of quantum mechanics and relativity theory. But you can't skip the first 300 years and say, oh, never mind that, I just want Einstein and Max Planck. Can't do it. So experientially, there's a lot to be said for really checking out that Satrantika. It's almost never done. They just debate, debate, talk, talk, talk. But to apply this experientially in the four applications of mindfulness, really brilliant. So there it is. This intervening space is something you can directly perceive. And Sautrantika says, if you can directly perceive it with your senses, then it's impermanent. Right. Now, that, that's an assertion. Well, bear in mind, I'm telling you the Sautrantika philosophy is fundamentally flawed in some incredibly deep ontological ways. It got some really fundamental assumptions absolutely wrong. Is that one of them? Or not? So that's, that's where it's fun. You see, you're, get, you're getting a... a a way of viewing reality that is just has a lot of muscle to it, a lot of brilliance to it. Intellectually well-formulated, sophisticated, rational, a lot of pragmatic implications to it, which are extremely useful. And then, because this is the first, I was trained as a Buddhist monk for, for, for years, this is the first philosophy you're introduced to, the Sautrantika. And when you're introduced to it, it makes so much sense. Just like when I first studied physics, you get classical physics first, 
Only after that do you get relativity theory and quantum mechanics. Right. Well, it's the same. But as a Buddhist monk, when you're first getting introduced to Satrantika philosophy, which is the first form of Buddhist philosophy you're introduced to, you're shown the elegance of it, the sophistication, the rationality, the empirical clarity and precision of it, and you're told from the very beginning, oh, and by the way, it's deeply flawed. That's where it gets really fun. In other words, you're not getting indoctrinated here. You're getting a tool to use it and then keep on using until you can see for yourself, by reason and direct experience, whoa, that's how it's flawed. Amazing. Amazing. So right now we're looking at space. So we'll say the sheer absence of something, well, there's, then there's nothing there. There's nothing to rise and fall, rise and fall. A mere absence of something can't rise and fall. It's just a sheer absence. So we're going to call that permanent in the sense that it has no momentary arising and passing. That's all permanent means in Buddhism. It doesn't mean it lasts forever. Right? But that space in between, that actually appears. And you can look at it closely. Really closely. And see, is that really static? Maybe not. But then we can ask, can you still see it? Can you still see it? Can you still see space? What do you see? With one eye, can you see space? Can you still see it? Or is it gone? Can you see it? Tracy, can you see space with one eye? Yes? Everybody else, can you see space? Elizabeth, you can see space. You simply see it better with two, two, two eyes, but you can see it also with one eye? Yes? That's okay. A little bit out of focus. That's interesting. Maybe you're looking with the wrong eye. Or maybe you should put on your glasses. <laughs> what do you think? Can you see space with one eye? Well, you don't need to have, one, you don't need to have any idea. You just need to look. What do you see? Bear in mind, there's no punishment for getting any wrong answer. This is just open inquiry. But it's taking an interest in our own immediate experience. That We've always been told, oh, it's illusory, it's illusory, let the scientists take over. That's like the Roman Catholic priest saying, you don't need to read the Bible. Just let us read it for you. We'll tell you what's true. You don't need to read it. You don't even need to have it in your language. You peons, we'll take over from here. You know, it's a total authoritarian trip. And Martin Luther blew that apart, of course. That's what the scientists, the mind scientists are doing to us now. They're saying, oh, never mind your subjective experience. That doesn't count. We'll tell you what's going on. Here's what's happening in your brain. As if that's the final word. It's such much a crock. Such baloney. So what's your immediate experience? What's your sense? Can you see space with one eye or not? Uh, I, can, I don't know if it's on. I think it's on, yeah. Um, uh, I guess I get a bit disturbed by bit by the, like an ice cream cone. Um, by there the we go. conceptual thoughts of thought about uh, color and light and space. Maybe I'm I'm mixing too much into the simple question of Could experience. Be. It's easy to do. You know, that's a very good observation. Our concepts of color, of shape, of space, and so forth, then kind of melding into or. or flowing into experience and then wondering how do we, t like with tweezers, how do we pick this out? What did I perceive? What did I imagine? What did I conceptualize? What did I superimpose? That's subtle. That's why. Here's a boon that we just don't find anywhere in Western civilization. Really don't. Unless it's maybe some early, early Christian monks 
practicing something like shamatha. But you don't get this shamatha training. It's just not a strength of Western civilization. Even in the 20th century, for virtually all of the 20th century, the best mind, mind scientists thought that attention was static. You can't train it. That's unbelievable. They didn't even bother to ask the question. What's wrong with you people? This is so important. And you're just going to assume for 100 years that attention can't be trained? Do you know your children need an education? Do you know it might be helpful? William James pointed this out a century ago. What's wrong with you people? I mean, the, the lack of imagination sometimes just staggers my mind. The questions that were not asked. That's one of them. It should have been asked 100 years ago. We could have had 100 years of samadhi training in Western cognitive science. They just sat on their asses, never even asked the question. It's incredible. Lack of curiosity. What's wrong with the scientists? Get off your asses. Quit looking at the brain. It's just a bunch of tapioca pudding with electricity going through it. <laughs> really, it's just chemical electricity. Get over it. If you want to know about the nature of mind, why don't you look at it? Get your fixation off the tapioca pudding business. You know. So there we are. We're just kind of looking at it closely. Yeah. So your your point is very well taken. It's a good one. That's what we have shamatha training for. To get that, really be able to take executive control, psychological term, get that conceptual mind to shut up. You'll have your time. When I want to, when I want to hear from you, I'll ask you a question. Until then, shut up. I'm busy. And boom, go non-conceptually as much as you can. Knowing that's not going to be perfect, but at least you can sh shut down at least the gross noise. That's what shamatha is for. To go down to, right down to the substrate consciousness, which has conceptualization, but it's just kind of simmering. It's, it's subliminal. It's almost precognitive. Right? It's good. Very good insight. Let's look at one question that pertains to this. This is from uh, Steph, Office, Stephen, Steph, Steph, uh, Stephanie. Then, Steph, 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 Steph Office, Stephanie. Stephanie. Thank you. Like Steph or Stephanie? Um, Steph. Steph is fine. It's yeah. good. Yeah. Okay, Steph. I might, may as well call you what you like to be called. It's only good. So here's some practical question: Is it okay internally to internally verbally guide ourselves through the meditation sequence script? You guide us through, or does this internal speech take us away from the mindfulness? Very good question. Outstanding question. So this, now we're, we're talking about straight shamatha. Now, now this will apply to Vipassana as well. It's a very good question, and there's, a, I think, a very good answer. And that is, if you study kind of the classic, especially Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist teachings on shamatha, you'll find that as you progress along the, different, the nine stages, along the path to shamatha, culminating in the realization of shamatha, that you achieve this by way of different powers, powers, and the first is the power of hearing. The power of hearing. That's how you achieve stage one. And that's just, what's the instructions? Like, what, what? And then you say, oh, focus your attention on the rise and fall of the abdomen. You just listen to the instructions. And by the power of hearing them and understanding them, then you're able to, to launch, to get into the practice. Right? So it's very straightforward. You heard, you decide, you choose to follow it, and then you do. If you don't hear the instructions, you just sit there like, oh, you don't know what to do. But once you've got the instruction, <coughs> You've heard them. You remember them. Then you move on to stage two, stage three, with what's called the power of thinking. The power of thinking. And this includes various things, but one of them is exact response to your question. And that is, you need to be your own mentor. Okay? You have to be your own mentor. It's helpful with the podcasts and, and so forth to, to, on occasion, you know, have a guided meditation, have somebody here talking, and so you're, you're kind of caught in a conundrum, frankly. 
Because what I'm inviting you to do, every time I do a guided meditation, I'm inviting you to do something that is anti-samadhi. <laughs> really, it's kind of odd. But that's what I'm inviting you to do. I'm inviting you to multitask. And samadhi is about not multitasking. And so I'm teaching you how, to not, how, how not to multitask by multitasking. In other words, I'm really screwing you over. I'm doing my best not to. But okay, it's a compromise. But when I'm leading you in a guided meditation, what are you doing? You're listening to my words, and if you wish, then you remember them, you follow them, you implement them, and then you hear my words again and say, what? Oh, okay. What? Okay. What? Okay. You're going back and forth, back and forth. Well, that's how you learn. You're getting it from hearing. right? And by the power of hearing, then you don't need to hear it anymore. Okay? But you do need to remember, and that's retrospective mindfulness, where you remember the instructions even when you're not hearing them, so if I should say now, you know, I should say, okay, what do, you, do you remember? What's it like? I got a quiz for you, okay? What do you do when you settle your body in its natural state? What three qualities do you bring forth when you settle your body in its natural state? There's only one right answer. Relaxation, vividness, and stillness? Yeah, I would just change the order. And for the body, but yeah, overall, sure. You got the order a little bit wrong, big deal. Let's not nitpick. Yeah, when you're settling the body in its natural state, it is... Relaxation, stability, and we don't really speak of vividness of the body, but vigilance, boom, like that. Even if you're in the supine position, psychologically, boom, you are practicing. You're on duty. Boom, I'm doing it. I'm vigilant. Your body looks like you're a corpse. Mentally, I'm here. I'm, I'm in for duty. I'm not AWOL. Boom. So relaxation, stability, and vividness, right? So if I kept on saying that every time I, I led a guided meditation, okay, now settle your body in its natural state. Settle it in the quality of ease, relaxation, comfort. Relax your eyes, relax. You say, hey, I've heard this before. You don't need to say that again. Thank you. I do remember. Please be quiet now so I can just do the practice. You know, that would be quite reasonable. You hear it, you hear it, and that's why you just don't want to hear it anymore because you already know, and you know it by the power of hearing. But then when you're just practicing, then, now I'm going to ask you a question. Sure, as a reminder, now you have your own internal guidance, like you are your own guru, your own teacher, your own meditation guide, and now you are, okay, I'm settling the body its natural state, and then you'll say to yourself, okay, yeah, right down to the ground, relax, now keep still, now be very clear, good. Now I'm settling the respiration in this natural rhythm, that's effortless, breathing as if I were deep asleep, but mindfully so. Now I'm settling the mind in its natural state. Now I'm focusing on the sensations of the rise and fall of the abdomen. I'm arousing, I'm releasing, arousing and releasing. In fact, I think I'll count. One count, staccato, at the end of each in-breath. So once you've heard that and you've remembered it, then it's helpful to give yourself a reminder. If you're somewhat new to the practice, it's just a friendly reminder. right? And so in that regard, then yes, this is helpful. And it's helpful only up to a point. Because once you know it, then even you don't need to hear yourself say it, right? Now you're just, you're just attending to the rise and fall of the abdomen. You simply are arousing and releasing, arousing and releasing. You simply are counting. You simply are monitoring the flow of mindfulness with introspection. You simply are applying the remedies, relaxation, re release, return, in response to excitation, refreshing your interest, refocusing your attention, retaining your mindfulness in response to laxity. So once you've learned it, and you've gone through the script, you reminded yourself, you reminded yourself, then you don't need to hear it anymore. 
A nice example is when you, can you remember, assuming you did, you learned how to drive stick shift, ordinary or, or standard transmission? You remember how you had to learn how to, to press, the cl uh, press the clutch down and then move the, this and then you hit the accelerator and so forth and you had to do all of this by, you might need to give yourself a script. Okay, now first clutch and now this and now release the clutch slowly and now the accelerator. So you have to give yourself a script, right? And then once you've learned it, the last thing you'd be doing when you've been driving for five years is depress the clutch, move your right arm, move it back. Oh, I say, give me a break. Shut up now. I know how to do it, right? And, but for a little while, when you're first learning, that's very useful. First the clutch, then the, the gear, you know, then the sh shift. Not vice versa. When my dad was teaching me how to drive stick shift and his Porsche, he didn't like it at all when I tried to change before the clutch. He didn't like that at all. So there we are. So you see the progression. First you hear it from outside, multitasking, multitasking, invading your quiet space with a voice from outside. But then slowly, the sheer quantity of voice from outside diminishes because you shouldn't have to hear it anymore. But you keep up the momentum by just reminding yourself so you're very clear. What is introspection? What are you looking for? How do you apply the remedy? Until you just don't need to hear it anymore. Like you've now mastered stick shift. You know how to change the gears, right? Then you say, okay, thank you, power of thought. You've served the job. Now I'm achieving stage two, stage three. Don't need you anymore. Thank you very much. And then you move on and you achieve the next stage with the power of mindfulness, which then is just a flow of non-forgetfulness. But you don't need the commentary. Okay? Thank you. Good, good, good. Let's see what your second question is. Similarly, is it okay to use verbal prompts throughout our meditation, such as relax, release, let go? Sure, same response. Very good, okay? Yeah. And finally, what do you do when you feel physical discomfort, like an itch? Can you scratch? <laughs> a bug, can you brush it off? Sore leg, can you move, readjust? <sighs> I'm just wondering how tyrannical I feel right now. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is, of course you can. Um, especially for shamatha, because there will be different answers for different, different practices. Okay? For shamatha, any kind of discomfort in the body is just a distraction. It's like somebody pulling on your cheek, you know, or pulling on your hair, or itching you, or pulling you, or whatever. It's just an itch, it's a bug, it's a cramp, it's whatever. It's just a distraction. So for shamatha, physical discomfort just isn't helpful at all. It's just a distraction, like having some tractor go by outside. It'd be nice if it weren't there. Okay, good, now it's gone. So for shamatha, overall, if you feel discomfort, then make some, if it's really tiny, then just get over it, you know, just focus. But if you see it now, you're starting to nag, almost like a whining child. Yeah, 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 like that. It's okay, okay, pipe down. Okay, that'll do it, you know. Just a mi minor adjustment, make it go away. Right? So for shamatha, yeah, you don't really want to put up with much discomfort. Okay? Now, when it comes to Vipassana, especially where we'll go early next week, in Vedana Satipatthana, the close application of mindfulness to feelings, we will look, give you a little sneak preview for next week, we will look at feelings arising in the body. Okay? Now, we know what they're like. Pretty much, they're, when we're just sitting here, not a whole lot of bliss arising, unless you're getting pretty good at samadhi. Uh, but discomfort here, itching there, scratching there, tingling there, and so forth. But different types of experience, ranging pretty much from neutral to a little bit uncomfortable to miserable. 
Uh, and so when we're closely applying mindfulness to feelings in the body, then when the feelings, including feelings of discomfort, arise, then instead of simply trying to make them go away, which is a very natural response, instead of doing that, we actually look at them very carefully, closely apply mindfulness to the discomfort, investigate it, take an interest in it, look at it, probe into it, like that. Uh, and we'll do the same thing when we go off to the dining hall and you're actually putting food in your mouth. Hopefully there will be some pleasure arising then. Okay? Otherwise you didn't choose very well. Uh, and so you see the pleasure arising in your eating, you're masticating. Maybe, the, the, maybe, maybe you'll first be drawn to the, some fragrance. Mm, you know, like, ah, a promise of things to come. You smell good, I bet you taste good too. And so you're picking up, ah, pleasure, I think I, think I want some of that. And then you put it in your mouth, yes, I think I want more. I think I want more. Right? Because you're picking up the pleasure. So then in that close application of mindfulness, the feelings, sensory, First of all, five physical senses, but especially the body. And then during the latter part of next week, then we'll look into feelings, pleasure, discomfort or suffering, and neutral in arising in the mind. Right. So I could say something. I'm not going to say anything right now, but I imagine I could say something to you right now that might possibly arouse a sense of pleasure. I won't, I won't try, but you can imagine I could say something that would kind of make you feel good. Well, possible. And likewise, it's possible that I could be very rude or say something very unkind, and that could give you some rise of unhappy feeling. Nothing physical. I'm not touching your body. I'm not just Nothing physical, nothing sensory. right? But just by the inf information, by the words I say, it's possible to trigger a feeling of pleasure, feeling unpleasure. Right? Quite true, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So then you know that pleasure is not somatic. It's not sensory. It's because something I said, some information that was transferred, and this information gives rise to a pleasant feeling. Oh, that was very nice of him to say. And oh, that was not kind at all. Why did he say that? That was very unkind. Like that, right? Some displeasure arising. So we'll be looking at the pleasure and looking at the displeasure mentally and saying, oh, it's not the same as physical. It arises in a very different way. And it's experienced in a very different, experience in a different domain entirely. It's experienced in the domain of mind. Whereas if you eat some ice cream, which they used to serve here, and they, they don't anymore. <laughs> that pleasure would actually arise inside your mouth, right where your tongue is, and you would feel that pleasure. Oh, ice cream. But don't get your hopes up. It's not happening. Used to. No longer. So now does it make you feel a little bit sad? A little bit sad? No ice cream for you. As much watermelon, though, as you want. <laughs> watermelon galore. There's no end to modern okay. So that's the answer. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Good. Let's see if there's a quickie. And that's almost dinner time. The minutes of best stability that I have experienced so far have been associated with surprising, surprisingly rapid and shallow breathing. Is this okay? The, breath, the breaths have been maybe one second or so of inhalation, inhalation and the same for exhalation. Okay? In practices of pranayama, for which I have a lot of respect, this is a very ancient, very wise, very deeply experientially based tradition of, of training, starting with ethics, going on to asanas, then on to pranayama, then right on to samadhi, the straight track to samadhi. There are ways in the Hindu tradition, as also in the Vajrayana Buddhism, ways of regulating the breath, as ways of regulating the prana, as ways of preparing your mind to go into samadhi. 
So there, there, there is a place for really overriding the natural flow of your respiration by deliberately breathing in long, breathing in left nostril, right nostril, closing sphincters, and so forth and so on. So there's a place for that. And I say that with respect. Okay? There is a place for that. And in contrast to that, in mindfulness of breathing, instead of drawing on the wisdom of the ages, the, the expertise, the insights, the techniques developed by yogis of the past, with a lot of brilliance and so forth, instead of relying upon somebody else's intelligence, their experience, their wisdom, you're relying instead on your own body. It's a natural pranayama. You're really relinquishing all control. And so if you're breathing at some point, without your encouraging it, without preference, without regulation, without control, without intervention of any kind, if on occasion your breath starts going one second in, one second out, and so forth like that, fairly rapid, that's what's happening. Just release into it. Don't egg it on, we say in English or American English, don't egg it on, that is, don't try to make it, oh, I like this, keep it up, I like that one second in, one second out. I'm digging it, you know, don't <laughs> dig it. Just let it be, just go, you know, hang with the Beatles. Let it be, let it be. You know, if it's, if it's short, it's short. If it's long, if it's long. If it's regular, it's regular. If it's irregular, it's irregular. So if that's what turns out to be the case for a while, if your breath is coming in and out fairly rapidly, hang with it. But don't try to perpetuate it. Don't mess with it. Don't try to regulate it. If that's what's happening and you notice at that time that your mind's getting stable, cool, simply notice that. But then don't try to stabilize the mind by messing with your respiration to say, oh, that was working well for me. I'll just do that. Okay? So this really takes a lot of trust. But it's not trust in me or the Buddha or the Theravada tradition or the Vajrayana tradition. It's trust in your own body, that your body's really good at breathing, and it does it best when you're totally out of the way and not messing with it at all. And that's called deep sleep. The kind of respiration that takes place when you're not dreaming, you have no cogitation, no rumination, no, no emotions coming up and messing with your whole respiration cycle. It's just, oh, that's the time when you're doing all the damage control, repairing all the damage you did during the daytime. Deep sleep, that lovely, soothing, soothing breath that takes place that you can observe somebody else, if you somebody else in bed with you. Watch them when they're deep asleep and that just kind of that nice flow. Say, wow, you must be enjoying that. And the answer is probably not. You know, just you know, non-lucid dream sleep. Okay, well, okay, better than nothing, right? But that's when the, 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 breathing, the breath is really restoring your vitality, your health, energy, and all of that, right? So trust your body. You don't have to trust me. You don't have to trust any lineage or great authorities of the past. But trust your body that if you just get out of the way and don't mess with it with rumination, control, cogitation, emotions, and all that, just be quiet and almost as if you're as if you're eavesdropping. You know the word eavesdropping, yeah? When you're just kind of listening in but without the other person knowing, which means you're not influencing their behavior. Right? You're just going like that. They don't even know you're listening. Like if two of you are having a conversation, and I'm just going like that. Right? And, and they can't tell that I'm, my ears are getting really, really big. What are you saying about me? You know? uh, when you're eavesdropping, then you're really very unobtrusive. You're not in, you're not intervening in the conversation. You just happen to be there, right? But taking a lot of interest, eavesdrop on your breathing. Don't mess with it. Don't kind of get in there, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing now? Are you up to snuff? Are you satisfying? 
Are you making me stable? Yeah. Chill, relax. Just eavesdrop. Minimum intervention. Right? So the answer is, if that's what's happening, let it happen. If your mind becomes stable then, good, stable. But you should also be, happy, be able, in principle, to have a stable mind when you're jogging, or when you're swimming, or when you're eating, or going to the bathroom. Why not? So you shouldn't just link your stability with one particular type of breathing. Okay? Oh, yeah. So, final point. This whole issue of the four elements turns out to have enormous firepower, just like the, the periodic table of, of elements. It has extraordinary usefulness. Oh, there's so much. You can't even count it. You can't even imagine how useful it is. But interestingly enough, from this first-person physiology, that is, from the inside out, it turns out these four, four elements, tremendous firepower, a lot of pragmatic application. And where it shows up? Indian Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Tibetan medicine. They say the whole world around us, that's the entire cosmos, consists of earth, water, fire, air, and space. There's nothing else out there besides those four elements and the derivative elements like smoothness and roughness and so forth. But fundamentally, what you're getting down to brass tacks, down to the basic elements, of what's going on in the physical world, earth, water, fire, air, and then space in which they all occur. So there's outer elements, and then your body is utterly part of, integrated with, the natural environment. Your body is composed of the four elements, the natural all around you is composed of the four elements, and health is, physical health, is a matter of being balanced. Classic Indian Ayurveda, the matter of being balanced. And then you'll find among the four elements, are you pr prominent for your own individual psychophysiological constitution? Are you more fire, like ruddy people with ruddy complexion, reddish, pinkish complexion, a lot of fire there? Are you more earth elements, okay? more heavy, ponderous, sometimes chubby, but, but more round edges, kind of really solid, not necessarily fat, but really boom, like that, big earth element? Are you water element? Are you air element? My wife is totally air. She's like 90 pounds, very slender. She hardly touches the earth. <laughs> My Lama Gyatrana Bhutra calls her busy, busy. Busy, busy. She hardly touches the earth. So light. You know? When she gives me a massage, it's like having a sparrow walk on my shoulders. <laughs> She's all air. Totally air. You know? So sometimes I joke when she's giving me massage, I say, oh, where's, where's Helga? Where's Helga? You know, Helga. Bring in Helga. I want a massage. I want Helga. You know, 200-pound Helga. Give me a real massage. Where's Helga? There's no Helga. I just have Vesna. Okay? So there you go. Can't have everything. So some people are earth, some people water, some people fire, some people air, some people space. Space cadets. Big space element. So we all have our certain predilections. And then the idea is, recognize where your imbalances are and then balance that with diet, balance it with exercise, balance it with your meditation, balance it with your environment. Try to strike, find, find balance in that. But outer elements, inner elements, and striking a balance between the two. That's the key to good health. It's actually very practical. And when a Tibetan doctor gives you uh, herbal medication or an Indian Ayurvedic, it's fundamentally about the elements restoring the balance among the elements because you're sick because some, one or more of the elements got out of whack. 
And you bring in those herbal, herbal treatments to restore the balance on a very subtle level. So the earth element, this, this very simple first-person physiology, first-person periodic table of four, only four elements, it's actually very useful. It's not primitive. It's not just folk psychology. It's, it's really, really powerful, very sophisticated from a first-person perspective. And you don't need all those hundred or more elements in the periodic table for meditation. They actually are useless. But earth, water, fire, air, very useful okay? for health as well as really investigating the body from the inside out. Oh, yeah. So, have a good evening. And then check out the four elements when you're eating. You definitely get some water element. If you're kind of looking and you didn't find much here, you'll find a lot of water element over there. And earth, and fire, and air. So check out the four elements when you're eating. Good. Enjoy evening. See you tomorrow.